Welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today is a founder of a portfolio company that I, I've really spent a lot of time with over the years and enjoyed. Uh, and I'm thrilled he's joining us. Luke Schoenfelder, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Always great to, to speak with you. So, so Luke, you're the, the founder of Latch, and, and obviously we'll, we'll get to this, but you've had some tremendous success lately and a lot more to come. But but I know that it wasn't easy, right? And I know that when you, you first started, it was a tough concept and you didn't get, you know, it was hard to raise money and everything else. So tell me one, or tell the audience, what Latch does, but then two, kind of what the early days were like. Absolutely, yeah, so at the broadest level, our vision has always been to make buildings better places to live, better places to work, and better places to visit, which is super broad, but as we thought about that whole ecosystem, there just hasn't been innovation there. And you know, we, we, we joke, uh, but it's true, rent is the world's oldest subscription product, and uh, it's not that great, and so we saw this opportunity to update the whole experience for all the stakeholders that sort of touch it. And the biggest problem we saw in the beginning was that there was gonna be two things that happened. One, the on-demand economy, ordering everything online, um, Uber, Airbnb, all of those trends were gonna accelerate and it was gonna come crashing into the traditional infrastructure in cities, which were based on mechanical keys. And those two things were not going to be able to intersect and not gonna be able to match how people wanted to live their lives. And so we had this idea of saying, how can we take this physical world and bring it onto the digital plane and do it in a way that makes the experience better for everybody? And it's crazy, but when we looked at this problem, what we found was that locks and access were really the things that were holding back a lot of experiences. And so we set out in uh, 2014 to create a hardware software ecosystem that brought together um, all of the needs of the building owner, the needs of the resident, and the needs of all these service providers into one system um, for everybody in a building. And people didn't get it at first because they kind of were like, well, is this like Nest except for locks? Why aren't you selling to consumers? Um, you know, I think Silicon Valley doesn't understand real estate or certainly didn't in 2014. This was kind of before PropTech and it was hard. It was hard for us to explain that, no, this is not a niche market. There's 47 million households that live in uh, rented properties in the United States. This is a, this is a real thing. So where were like when did this idea first hit you? Where were you? Were you in school? Like when, what happened? Yeah. So um, I had started when I left Apple. I started a company in smart metering, and so I was really interested in, in infrastructure. I've always been interested in infrastructure. The company failed, um, and it was a it was a really crazy sort of failure. Um, it wasn't it wasn't our fault. It was uh, if any of you have seen Molly's game, uh, some of our angel investors were in that high stakes poker ring that the FBI took down and the <laughs> FBI froze their assets. We couldn't raise the next round of financing because we couldn't get their sign off. And it was this crazy, like, are you, are you kidding me? Because they were minority shareholders, but we needed the, their signature on the ROFR, uh, which you know well, you can't, if, unless you get the right of first right. refusal signed off, you can't close around. So yeah. the FBI did not allow yeah. them to sign the ROFR, even though they only owned, I don't know, 12% of the company or something. So it was this crazy scenario where we thought we had a good- So what, what'd you do? Well, I, I, my bank account went to zero. Uh, I was at a, a retreat with some other entrepreneurs and this amazing woman was talking about this. Her idea was millennials don't understand 401ks and saving for retirement. She's pitching me on this and she's like, as soon as millennials hit hard times, they cash out their 401k. And I go, 
Eureka, I'm a millennial who forgot they had a 401k from their time at Apple. I should cash that out. So I had 4,500 bucks from my uh, very uh, modest Apple 401k and convinced my uh, engineering lead from the smart metering company that we were gonna do something together. And I just, I remember vividly, there was one meeting I had with my other co-founder um, and it all just kind of came to me and I wrote the whole business model for Latch at like, I don't know, 5.30 in the morning, sent it to, to my co-founders and the rest is history. And it really hasn't changed. It was, let's get our products installed. Let's create this software ecosystem on top of the hardware. It'll be the highest used thing at the building and then we'll scale from there. So I was right about everything except how much time and money it would take. You know, our first angel round was 300 grand and I thought we'd have products in market in like 18 months. And lo and behold, it took us seven years and however much money it's taken us to get to where we are. And it's a fantastic outcome, but you know, it's been a long road. So, so what was that moment where all of a sudden you kind of knew you were on the right track? Like what happened? I think it was, um, so, you know, you and I both have worked with a lot of real estate leaders in our lives in various ways. They're tough customers, right? They're tough, they're tough characters. And so I think I knew when, you know, we'd walk into a room to talk to somebody about what we were doing and they would spend, it's an hour meeting, they'd spend 55 minutes or 57 minutes telling you 17,000 ways why your thing sucks and you don't understand them and whatever. And then, they, you know, they'd be like, but it was nice meeting you. And then as I'm walking out of the conference room, someone would put their hand on my back and say, hey, would you be interested in, can I put some money into your idea? Like, I don't like it, I'm not sure about it, but could I invest with you? And it was this moment where you're like, wait, did that meeting just happen? But somebody like, in the deep part of their brain was like, there's something here. And there's even a Wall Street Journal article about this maybe three or four years ago about all of the you know real estate families in New York investing in Latch. And this was like the one thing they all agree on. And it was all from the, it wasn't an organized process. We didn't say, let's go meet all these people. It just kind of happened. And kind of without fail, it was really tough operational conversation. And then folks were being like, but let me invest. And that's kind of when I knew, I'm like, okay, they're seeing something in us. We're creating something that must really be valuable because these are tough customers. And they're definitely tough customers. I have also found that I think I know the real estate world more from the political side probably than, than from the kind of vendor vendor side of it. But I've also found that they, they frequently kind of don't know what they don't know in the sense of it's a world of people, especially in New York. It's mainly families. It's mainly people who's grandfathers and great uncles kind of came up with some great idea, bought a lot of property, made money, and they're just trying to kind of hold on to the empire. Um, is your sense that they feel that they understand technology and that's why they wanted Latch or more is there a recognition that, hey, you know, we're good at operating buildings, but we're not tech people and therefore we need to affiliate people who are? Like, what's your sense of how they see it? The, there's a full spectrum of folks who want, I think everybody is aware that now in 2021 the technology is going to change everything i mean the old, the quote of software is eating the world i think that is now understood and acknowledged by the real estate community now i think there's a, a variance of folks who look at that uh or, or or rather a gradient of folks who who look at that as an opportunity and something to like really get excited about or something that they're going to resist and i would say that for us our approach has always been to partner and learn from folks and i think that approach has been has what made, has been what's made us successful because we basically just make we take a design centric. I mean, myself, my co-founder, both came from Apple. We take a very like user centric, design centric view on this, which is what are your biggest problems? How can we work with you to solve them? And you know, Rob Spire, when he talks about us, he sees us as like 
their outsourced R&D department for the real estate industry. And I think that's an interesting sort of concept because we're at a scale where we can do things that no individual real estate company can do on their own. Right. And you also, we'll get to this back in a minute, but uh, you picked one of the companies that I think really does try to look at things in innovative ways and Tishman Spire and, and Rob and Jerry, I think are both excellent at that. And we've, we've, that's been my experience with them too. So you have this idea and initially who are your customers? Is it just, you know, is it, is it building catering to millennials? Um, and, and how do you get the sense that tenants were, I know that you're dealing with the, with the developers, but how were tenants responding? So I think we really knew it was going to work for tenants when, uh, you know, we just saw people sharing access. And what, the, what for us, what that said, so in our platform, you can use your phone to unlock, you can use a card in your wallet to unlock, you can use a, a code to unlock your door. Um, and that was sort of the first thing that we gave residents. And the, the extension of that was share access with anybody to your building, to your space. So I could from the Latch app, text someone a time-limited code that would get them into the space. And so we just started looking, well, how many people are doing this? And it turns out a lot of people need to share access to their space. And so if you think about all the times that you have to go home to let somebody in or stay at home to let somebody in, or you know you have a friend visiting and you reorganize your night to, to be able to, to let them in, all of those use cases were where we sort of built this real trust with the resident and excitement around what we were doing. Um, and I think that was the first time we knew it was really gonna work for residents. Um, and then we just layered in more and more experiences there. And you know, today the average Latch app user interacts with our app 4.6 times a day. So if you think about how many apps on your phone you, you use 4.6 times a day, it's, it's a pretty short list. Right. So let's let's take half a step back, and which is you you clearly figured out both a, an opportunity and need, and then how to actually fill that need. Um, prop, prop tech more broadly, what would the world? What would a perfect world look like in your view? I mean, ha, what kinds of other automation and technology will get incorporated into the way that we live? Yeah, I think. I mean, and this is our thesis: is that it, it's really just focusing on that user experience. And I think you have sort of two camps within PropTech right now. You have folks that have come from within the industry. Um, so they're real estate uh, professionals. And typically they're not, you know, technology or product or design people. That's, that's just not where the real estate industry has historically been strong. And so they struggle to get the product and the technology right. And then you have on the other side of the spectrum, people who are product and technology people who look at the industry and say, it's this big opportunity. I'm just, my idea is so great. I bet everyone's gonna want it. And there isn't, there's very few companies that have found that like Goldilocks zone of understanding the customer and the real estate space need, and then having the product and design and engineering talent to actually execute against that need. And I think that, that overlap is is what is needed to really build the best products. Um, yeah, I, th I think that makes sense. And I think it just, do you feel like the prop tech industry took a real hit during COVID or do you think kind of new innovation is going to keep coming? I think new innovation is going to keep coming. I mean, I look at our business and the growth uh, in bookings that we experienced. And I, and I think that's a pretty broad indicator. I think that many people have said, and I think it's true that COVID was an accelerant for what was already going to happen, right? And it pulled the future forward. And I think we've, we've definitely seen that in our business. Um, if I had to bet, will the building of the future have more software and more consideration of experience or less? 
I would say more, right? And, I, and, I, and we're basically just making sure that we're uh, setting the, the sort of standards for how that experience is gonna evolve in the right way that respects tenant privacy, provides a great experience, um, and then and meets the needs of owners as well. So let's talk a little more about, about the impact of COVID. Uh, in New York, we've seen lots of people move from the city to the suburbs or leave at least temporarily, if not for good. Um, do you feel like there's sort of a fundamental shift in, in real estate in big cities right now, or will everyone kind of get back to their senses and come back to New York uh, or L.A. or Chicago or wherever, you know, a few months after herd immunity comes in? New York City is the greatest city in the world. There's no there's no doubt about it. I'm not a New Yorker by any means. Uh, from from Historically, like I've lived in New York. I love New York. I guess I'm a New Yorker now. I mean, you, you're a lifelong New Yorker. So you so you tell me when, when I hit that threshold. I, I'm going to bestow the title on you of New Yorker right now. All right. That's a that's that's a big one. I, Congratulations. That's yeah. a big one. All right. So I, I've made it. So I guess for me, I, th that is an experience that I've recognized objectively as opposed to just like, well, I was born here and New York is great. New York is special. There's something about it that's just absolutely amazing. And I don't think that that's going anywhere. I think what may be changing is how often someone is going to need to go to a nine to five job in a, in a, in a city center. And I think that doesn't mean that people are not interested in being in cities. It just means that it may change the way that you know they experience the city uh, and and how they work in the city, and I think that's the the likely outcome as opposed to this wholesale rejection of urban life. I, I I think the opposite. In fact, I think that if the pandemic would have ended after six months, so let's say you know the holiday season, you know we would have all been able to go back. I think we may have actually seen a longer uh, longer term impact on people wanting to stay remote because we've proven that it was possible, but now we've crossed into this period of time where all of us are desperate to be back with other people, or at least I am, right? I don't know. I don't know how you feel. And, and so we spent the first first six months up at our place upstate, which was lovely and we're very lucky that we had a place to go to, but there was this moment where I said to myself, if I wanted to live in a rural community, I would, right? I don't want to. I yeah. want to live in New York City. Yeah. And, and, and I think so many of our employees and so many of our friends are, are going to look at it and say that same thing. Like, I want to go to crowded restaurants where, you know, there's interesting people and I'm overhearing a conversation and I'm doing this and having that humanity. Right. And I think uh, and I think it's it, I think it's going to come back for sure. So, so you built a successful company, a tech company in New York City, um, really kind of without uh, an engaged city government around tech. As you know, we've discussed, we're running Andrew Yang's campaign for mayor. If we're lucky enough to win, and I said, Luke, okay, we really want to build a tech sector here. Um, we're really willing to use city resources, policy, everything else to do so. What, what should we do? What would have been helpful to you had it been available? I think a few things. I mean, I think one of the things that would be really cool is to try to set up initiatives where you actually partner with technology companies in New York City to solve problems for the city. I mean, I know Google sort of famously had their 10% sort of programs, and I'm sure there's been some collaboration with them historically about uh, you know things that could be done in New York. But that would be a way to really engage people in the problems, right? I think people really do, if you're a product and you're a person, you're an engineer, you're a designer, you really wanna solve problems. And if you see a problem in the city, having an outlet to go actually work on that, I think is really awesome. And I think that's one, I mean, I think another one is, is, is just thinking about um, ways that we can keep 
the talent pipeline strong and give people reasons to live in New York City. I think the education pipeline, you know, great schools, NYU, Cornell, Stevens, you know, continuing to invest in that and, and create programs to keep those folks, those graduates in New York. I think that could be another, those would be two things that I would say, how do we keep technology and STEM grads in New York instead of just going out to the Bay Area? And then how do we engage the tech community to solve problems for the city we all live in? Those would be the two things I'd think about. Yeah, those both make a lot of sense. And I think, you know, those are things that you can achieve just with a lot of effort, even with one at a time in the budget where there's not much money. So um, yes. those make a lot of sense. So so you recently uh, announced that you're uh, selling Latch to Tishman Spire through a SPAC. Um, tell me kind of what your initial thoughts were on the whole SPAC phenomenon and what convinced you that this was the right exit? Well, we had the benefit of a, of a, of a SPAC approaching us in uh, 2019. So, you know, we were totally prepared for this, uh, for this moment. Now, no, no, nobody was, you know. You, was, you knew was, SPACs way before it was cool to know SPACs. Way, way inside of, no, I'm just kidding. But like, no, nobody, you know, could have predicted exactly how sort of the SPAC phenomenon has, has taken shape. But, you know, I think what we found is there's this latent demand from investors to create this, this, there's a big appetite for gross age technology companies. And that's a really exciting thing to get to be a part of. And, you know, we, we had our first conversation with us back in 2019. And then um, we ended up having a large number of SPACs reach out to us. Some of our existing shareholders uh, formed their own SPACs. Um, and so we had quite a few, we had a handful of our own shareholders that had SPACs. Uh, plus, uh, just the wider you know market, uh, we had a lot of a lot of interest, and so for us as a fiduciary, we started to look at it and say, well, here are all of these opportunities that we see to make you know buildings better places to live, work, and visit. How can we accelerate those and 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 pursue that growth? And merging with a, a SPAC seemed like an interesting opportunity. And in contrast to you know an IPO. Um, what was a, or a traditional IPO, I think what was interesting about a SPAC is the opportunity to find a value-added partner that could really help us in this next stage of growth. And when you look at Tishman Spire's operating reputation and the geographies and verticals that they serve, um, there was this unique opportunity to partner, partner with Rob and, and with the Tishman Spire team on this transaction. Yeah. So what do you, more broadly, how do you feel about kind of the trajectory of SPACs. You know, there's a lot of talk about this being a bubble that will burst. Um, the last week or so, 10 days, has been tough for SPACs. I think my own SPAC is probably down about 10% uh, in the last week or two. Um, where, does, where does this all land? Hard to predict the future, of course. But what I would say is that I think what we're seeing is there is a demand in the market that is a totally rational and reasonable demand for exposure to high tech, high growth companies, right? And if you look at the SoftBank Vision Fund and the sizes of checks, the stage of companies they were investing in two years ago, and the amount of capital that was in that space, over $100 billion, you know, that was with one manager, it's actually, there's an interesting parallel because if you look at the Vision Fund decline and the rise of SPACs, it sort of shows that there's this market demand for a stage and scale of business and vision that, exists and has existed for the last few years. Um, yeah, I think that I think that's totally right. It's funny, it's exactly consistent with my experience, which is if you're a SPAC that can bring true strategic value to the company that you're acquiring, 
then it just makes a ton of sense. And if it makes sense, it, it economically it will go forward. Yeah, I think the, the downside or the problem, uh, you know, that people are going to face, it's great to raise this back. But, you know, I, I've been using the analogy of uh, Japanese whiskey. So I don't know if you're a whiskey drinker or, or have Japanese whiskey, but nobody five years ago was talking about Japanese whiskey. And then all of a sudden, 24 months ago, everyone there decided that Japanese whiskey was the thing. Well, there's no more 17-year habiki that has been made, right? They, right. they started aging it in barrels 17 years ago for the market demand that they knew about. And I think you're going to see that same thing. There's not an infinite supply of companies that are high growth, high vision, that are ready to be public companies. And you know, I, I, the longer you wait, the less 17-year habiki is left. And I think that's going to be the problem is there's a lot of people saying, I love Japanese whiskey too, and I have money to pay for it. There just isn't whiskey to buy. Yeah. Although if you do a SPAC with a Japanese whiskey co company right now, that's the one that's going to be a total home run. So that's our next well, deal. And, and what's interesting is that the pipe, so if it was a, to, to take that analogy one step further, you also then, uh, you, if you, even if you are willing to pay uh, inflated price for Japanese whiskey, you then have the market acting as the check because you actually have to turn around and then it's a public entity, right? And so you have this interesting moment where it's not just one person's judgment about what that whiskey's worth, it's actually a fairly efficient vehicle to get market sentiment around what that whiskey is worth as well. So I think that's where people are gonna find trouble is they can say, I'm willing to pay $25 for this bottle of whiskey, but the reality is the market will be like, well, it's only worth 17, so like pipe down. And, and I think, right. and that wasn't even a pun, but it is a, but it is a, but it is a, it is true. Pipe down. I'm not, I'm not sure if that, I'm not, we'll see how many listeners get the pipe pun, but yes, it is. Okay. Yes, yes. But, but I, but I think that's, I think that's the, I think that's the moment where you're going to see this break bad. But the worst case scenario in that situation is their sponsors who, you know, are, lose their at-risk capital or whatever, you know, the, the, the funds will get recycled back into the market. So it's not, it's not quite the same risk as it's just gonna all be burned away. So last topic, which is, I think government has been a little unsure of how to think about companies like Latch and whether to see them as things really add value to the, the rental and housing ecosystem or in some way uh, might enhance inequity. Um, you know, if, if I were a regulator saying to you, hey Luke, honestly, I'm not sure how to think about Latch, uh, what would you tell me? I would tell the regulator that, look, uh, I grew up as a poor kid in an apartment complex, right? The reason why I built this this these this system of products is to make life better, right? And I happen to grow up in a fantastic building, but like the ability to make this system better for everybody and work for everybody is not only our stated goal, it is actually what we do. And you know, you can look at the things that we've done that no one else has done. I mean, we've spent so much money on ADA and compliance for, for folks that are not as abled, right? Or not as able. Um, and I think those are things that other people don't do, but we've done above and beyond what's required because we believe that the best design, the best products are universal and we want to create products that are universal and serve people. And, and that is really not only what we say, it's what we do. And if you just look at our track record and as we've had conversations with regulators, people see that. We, we say we care about privacy, we, care, we say we care about inclusion, and then we actually just build those things the right way.
Yep. As, as someone whose company is involved in those conversations, I can attest that that's absolutely right. And, um, and it's funny because because regulators, they're kind of, my experience has been they're kind of taken aback by like, wait, all right, what's the catch? And we're like, there isn't a catch. I used to work with privacy stuff. I think privacy is a human right. Like we work, we, we believe that. Like how can we, how can we actually push the whole industry that, that way? Right. And that, it's interesting. I, I know Hugo's going to tell me we need to go right now, but the leaning into the zeitgeist, I, th I think it's so kind of important politically for different startups in the sense of the assumption is, oh, every tech company will oppose privacy because they want to make money by monetizing your data. And then there's, there are companies like Latch who say, actually, it's the exact opposite. Like we, we, privacy makes our product stronger and safer. We'll sell, we'll sell more. We'll make more money. Um, and when you have the opportunity to kind of lean into where society is going on it rather than trying to push back for your own interests it's very powerful absolutely and, and you know you'll continue you'll see us continue to invest in that area and pursue development in that way cool well we're looking forward to it uh luke schoenfucker thank you so much for joining us hey thanks so much for having me